0: Recognize the importance of love. I, I mean, when you think about it, we're, we're, we are, are God's followers. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the, the, the quality that God is known for, He is known for love. 1 John chapter 4, and verse 8. And, and when Jesus told us the greatest command, when He summed up life as a disciple and said that all of the commands, fit under this one command. It was a command for love, to love God preeminently and to love others selflessly. And when Jesus identified the traits that we would be known for in John chapter 13 and verse 35, he said it was love. So obviously, love is important. Love matters. Love distinguishes us as children of God. But you've also likely heard that at times love can be blind. See, we understand that love is an essential attribute of the Christian, but we also need to acknowledge that when it is incorrectly applied, love can also be a blindfold. And we're going to call this the blindfold of affection today. And this morning, I want to point out three primary ways in which our affection Can blind us. Let me start with this one. We are blindfolded by affection when we allow relationships to compromise discipleship. I want you to think about King Solomon for a moment. Now King Solomon is most well known for what? For wives. You can go to 1 Kings chapter 11 and you can find out that he had 700 wives and that didn't include the concubines that he had. And I want you to think, 700 wives. How do you keep up with the anniversaries? I mean, that's an average, uh, nearly of one anniversary per day. I mean, two anniversaries per day. I mean, that is complicated. 700 wives. Actually, if you read 1 Kings chapter 11 in the first verse, you'll find out that the text says King Solomon loved many foreign women. Verse 2, in the last part of verse 2, it adds that Solomon clung to these in love. Love's not a bad thing, but did you notice? <coughs> Excuse me. As you look at the description here of Solomon, love is his problem. He loved many foreign women, and he clung to them in love. That, that speaks to the importance they were in his life. And, and love is a great thing between, between a husband and a wife. But what we need to notice is the description of these as foreign women. Now, this is not uh, a statement against interracial marriage or anything like that. What it is is that in the nation of Israel, under Mosaic law in the Old Testament, God had instructed His chosen people, the Israelites, not to marry anyone outside of the nation of Israel. And He had a very good reason for it. You can go to Deuteronomy Chapter 7, and what you'll see there is that God says in verse (coughs) 4 that you should not marry foreign women because they will turn away your sons and your daughters from following me to serve other gods. So you're not supposed to, as an Israelite, marry someone outside of the faith of Israel, outside of the nation of Israel, because they don't serve Yahweh, they don't worship Yahweh, they don't obey Yahweh, and what they will do is lead you away from Him. And God reiterated this command specifically in the context of whoever was king. You can turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 17, where he specifically instructed the kings of Israel not to multiply wives for themselves, lest their heart turn away from him. God recognized that in the context of relationships, specifically marriage here, that the influence of others can take us away from God. That they can distance us from him. And so God gave instructions in Mosaic Law not to marry people who were not of the same faith. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 11, and verse 4, it says that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. So Solomon, the descendant of the man after God's own heart, this individual who God specifically blessed, with discernment and wisdom like no one else. He was blindfolded by his affection for others. And some of us have experienced the same type of blindfold. Maybe not in the context of marriage, per se. But some of us have been so enamored with another individual, whether it was someone to whom we were physically attracted or simply a friend with an infectious personality, And some of us have been so enamored with another individual that we have compromised our morals to associate with them. And our affection for that person, or or that group of people for that matter, became so great that we were willing to sacrifice our character, even our convictions, to associate with them. See, our relationships have a tremendous influence on the direction of our lives. The Bible speaks about this very often. In Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 26, Solomon, who went down the road the wrong way with relationships, Solomon said the righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. What he's saying is he's saying that we need to be picky about who we associate with, who we build relationships with, because it's very easy for those who are wicked to lead you astray. He would also say in Proverbs chapter 12, 27 and verse 17, that as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And his point is that just as our friends have the ability to negatively influence us, they also have the ability to positively affect us. And so we need to be smart about who we associate with, who we build relationships with, because they can affect the direction of our life. They can impact it negatively or positively. You'll even recall that Paul in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, Excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, he rather bluntly said, bad company corrupts good morals. So the Bible speaks consistently about the impact of our relationships and how they can influence the direction of our lives. And that's why the Bible indicates we should be willing to take extraordinary measures to protect our relationship with God from our relationships with others. There's this very interesting command back in Deuteronomy chapter 13 in verses 6 through 10 where Mosaic Law provided the following instruction. It says, "...if your brother or your son or your daughter or your wife or your friend entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people." You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So to summarize, Mosaic law says that if your relative or your friend or someone you have a relationship with tries to get you to engage in idolatry with them, it wasn't enough for you just to say, no, I'm not going to do that. You were expected to execute them. You weren't expected to protect them. You weren't expected to just teach them. You were expected to take extraordinary measures to distance yourself from them. And in the context of the Old Testament, that included punishment. That included discipline. That included execution. And the reason was because God was teaching the Israelites the importance of of protecting their relationship with him from their, their relationship with others. Now, I'm not bringing up this command in Mosaic Law to encourage us to start executing people again in that fashion. I'm pointing this passage out because it shows how serious God was about protecting our relationship with Him. He is so serious about protecting that relationship that if our affection for others gets in the way, then He expects us to remove that source of affection. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is ultimately saying is that our affection for him, our affection for God, has to be more than our affection for anyone else that our affection for him cannot be surpassed by affection for others. And we need to understand that at times we can become so enamored with somebody that we let our affection for them take precedence over our affection for God. That's a blindfold. And it has dire consequences with it because any time someone is elevated above God, guess what? They have become an idol to us. And as you know, throughout Scripture, idolatry is condemned. So we need to be wary about our relationships, understanding that it's great to love. It's great to build deep, intimate relationships, and it's even necessary. But never should such relationships take precedence over God. Never should we allow our relationships to compromise our discipleship. But that's not the only way we can be blindfolded by affection. We can also be blindfolded by affection when we prioritize acquisition over salvation. Let me explain what I mean. There are many ways we can emphasize acquiring things in our lives. It may be that we emphasize the acquisition of financial wealth. We may be a type of person who really cares about money or possessions we may be like the rich fool you can read about in Luke chapter 12. A very unique parable of Jesus because he, he talks about this individual who had such a great harvest one year that he didn't have room in his current barns, in his current storage facilities to house all of his harvest. And so his brilliant idea was, let's just tear down the storage facilities I currently have, let's build bigger ones, and then we can put it all in there. And that's what he does. And after he's built these ginormous storage facilities for all of this harvest that he's laying back in store. He sits down and he says, hey, I can just eat, drink, be merry, and relax because I've got this covered for years. I've got enough in these barns that I don't have to worry about money for years. And he's comfortable with that. He finds security and peace in the fact that he's got all of this wealth. But then as the story goes, God speaks to him and says, this night your soul will be required of you. You see, the one thing this rich fool didn't do is prepare for eternity. He was so focused on acquiring financial wealth that he sacrificed his soul in the process. That's what I mean by prioritizing acquisition over salvation. But you know what? Not all of us struggle with money. Not all of us seek rich. Some of us do struggle with the acquisition of social wealth, though. Some of us desire for popularity and fame and success and everything that comes with being well-known, being respected, being famous, in a sense. And we're like Ananias and Sapphira. Now, Now, those are two names you're familiar with. No, 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 that's some individuals that, that come to mind pretty easily for many of us because of their story in Acts chapter 5, where you have this couple who decides to sell a piece of property and give some of the proceeds to the church. Now, that in and of itself is admirable. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 4, you find out that many Christians were doing this. In the early days of the church, many Christians were selling property, giving the proceeds to the apostles so that they could distribute throughout the brotherhood, and take care of one another so that nobody had a need, so nobody was hurting. Everybody was taken care of. Ananias and Sapphira decided to do this as well. So they're not extraordinary. Other people were doing this. Barnabas was known for this in in Acts chapter 4 as well. But Ananias and Sapphira made a decision that cost them. They decided that they would sell this piece of property, keep some of the money for themselves, and give the rest to the church. You know what? That was their prerogative. There was nothing wrong with them deciding to keep some of the proceeds for themselves. In fact, when Peter addresses them a little bit later in Acts chapter 5, he says to them, Acts chapter 5 and verse um, 4, he said, after the property was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, they had a complete decision, complete prerogative to decide how to disperse that, that money. They could have given some, all, or none of it to the church. It didn't matter. It was their prerogative. But here's what Ananias and Sapphira did. They kept some for themselves, gave some to the church, but then they claimed that they were giving all of what they received to the church. You see, what they wanted, ultimately, was the fame that came with such a sacrificial offering. They wanted the reputation, they wanted the recognition of someone who's going to be a big giver. They wanted people to think that they sold this piece of property and they gave everything to the church. They wanted that notoriety that that Jesus gave to that widow with the, the two coins. And how when she gave the last of her bit of money, the two coins, she was highly praised for that sacrifice. They wanted that kind of recognition, but they weren't doing that kind of giving. And they were called out for it. And what's the end of their story? Both of them dropped dead on the spot. You see, their desire for social wealth, for reputation, for fame, for recognition, costs them their souls. You see, we have this desire for acquisition in a variety of ways. And we're not unlike the rich fool. We're not unlike Ananias and Sapphira. Some of us are so consumed with affection for financial gain or for social gain that we'll prioritize obtaining it above our spiritual well-being. Maybe your occupation takes precedence over discipleship and you focus on cultivating your resume or cultivating your business contacts, or cultivating your portfolio rather than cultivating your relationship with God. Maybe success in the community or success at school or success at the gym or success on the ball field takes precedence over discipleship. And you focus on being in those locations more than you focus on being in the presence of God. Maybe popularity drives you more than discipleship and you are more concerned with what other people think about you than you are with what God thinks about you. See, there's a variety of ways in which we're driven by acquisition more than we are by salvation. And I want to remind you that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul instructed his his young protege Timothy to avoid people who are lovers of self, who are lovers of money, who are lovers of pleasure because they are not lovers of God. The instruction to avoid such people means that not only are we uh, to avoid associating with those kinds of people, but we're also to avoid becoming those kinds of people. Paul is condemning people who love themselves, who love pleasure, and who love money because when you love that, when your affection is on those things, it's not going to be on God. And the point that Paul is making is that the life of one whose affection is set on financial or social wealth is incongruent with one whose affection is set on God. This is evident from Jesus' declaration in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 that you cannot serve two masters. And the reason you can't serve more than one master is because you will inevitably Hate the one and love the other. Or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve two masters because your affections can't be split. Your affection can't be divided like that. We must not forget that financial wealth and social wealth are only temporary gains, that spiritual wealth is what Christians are called to pursue. Just a few verses before, Jesus talked about the not serving two masters. He instructed us to not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where where a thief can't break in and steal. And Then he goes on to say that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is. That's where your affections will be directed toward. So what you really need to ask yourself today as we deal with this blindfold of affection is is what is it that you really love? What is it that drives you? What is it that motivates you? What is it that your life is centered around? Because it's either God or something else. You know, it's in in 1 John chapter 2 that we read for our scripture reading where we're told not to love the world or the things in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That that passage sets up a challenge to us. Either we're going to love things that are of this world or we're going to love things that are not of this world. We've got to make a choice. What does your bank account say you love? What does your calendar say say you love? What does your spare time say that you love? We can be blindfolded by our affection for so many things because we prioritize them over salvation. And we are blindfolded by affection when we prioritize acquisition over salvation. But you also may be blindfolded by affection when you promote tolerance over truth. We live in a culture that thinks tolerance is the highest ideal. That accepting anyone and everybody, no matter what their beliefs are, no matter what their morals are, that acceptance is the ideal. There's a church in the book of Revelation, the church in Thyatira, that's spoken about that Jesus writes a letter to in the last part of Revelation chapter 2. In verse 20 of Revelation chapter 2, Jesus said to this church, I have this against you. He has a problem with them. And that problem is that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, to understand what he's talking about here, you need to know that the city of Thyatira had numerous trade guilds. Nearly every occupation, nearly nearly every means of making money had a trade guild. And the guilds controlled the economy in that city. If you weren't a part of a guild, then you might not find employment. If you weren't a part of the guild, then you might not be able to sell your goods in the marketplace. If you weren't a part of a guild, then you might get boycotted by the community. And the problem with these guilds is that each one had a patron deity. Each one had a god or a goddess that it worshipped. And they had a place for you to go worship them. And they had activities for you to do when you went and worshipped them. And some of those activities included sexual promiscuity and eating food sacrificed to them. And so many of the Christians living in Thyatira had to make a choice. They had to decide whether they were going to to, uh, uh, compromise their devotion to God for the sake of making ends meet, or if they were going to, to, to risk their financial and social situation in order to be devoted to God. And it appears that this individual nicknamed Jezebel was advocating for them to compromise. She was apparently saying that it's okay for Christians to participate in the activities of the trade guilds of Thyatira because it was necessary professionally. And so Christians in Thyatira, they're at fault here because some of them buy into her teaching and some of them commit that compromise. And and they compromise their convictions and they compromise their character for the sake of making ends meet. But there are also Christians in Thyatira who were guilty because they failed to condemn Jezebel. They may not have compromised, but they didn't correct either. This church is praised in verse 19 for its love and for its patience and patient endurance, but it may just be that these qualities manifested themselves in a tolerance rather than a condemnation of Jezebel. And like those Christians in Thyatira, some of us, out of our affection for somebody, have tolerated sin when we should be condemning it. There are Christians who know that their brother or sister in Christ is persisting in a sinful activity, but they refuse to call their sin out because they don't want to offend them. There are Christian parents whose children deliberately and willfully engage in a sinful lifestyle but they accept their children's decision without criticism with, without discipline because they are afraid of losing them. There are far too many churches whose leaders refuse to withdraw fellowship from those who for all intents and purposes are walking disorderly to use the terminology of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 16. We have problems even in the church with tolerance. And what we need to remember is that tolerating sin is not a form of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verses 4 through 6 tells us that love rejoices with the truth. And Paul instructs us in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15 to speak the truth in love. There is an, an intertwining of love and truth in Scripture. Truth is not sacrificed for the sake of love in the eyes of God. And yet that's exactly what happened in Thyatira. They determined that it was more important to love than to stand for the truth, so their love had no standards, it had no boundaries. And in an effort to be loving, they tolerated ideas, and they tolerated conduct that were not acceptable to God. But that's also what happened in Corinth. Paul criticized the Corinthian congregation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because there was sexual immorality among them that was not even tolerated among pagans. And apparently, the church in Corinth bragged about this. Paul said in in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 5, your boasting is not good. They were apparently boasting on the grounds that they had demonstrated some exceptional level of mercy to those Who engaged in sin, who had impenitently engaged in sin. But notice what Paul said they should do. If if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's two big things Paul said they should do. In verse 3, he said, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And the implication of that statement is that he expected the Christians in Corinth to do the same. He expected them to condemn the actions of the one who's impenitently living in sin. We have to remember that that Christ calls on us to judge with righteous judgment. The world around us loves Matthew chapter 7, where it says that we shouldn't judge other people. Judge not, lest you be judged. That might be a more well-known verse among the the unbelievers of the world than John 3.16 is. They like to throw that back at us. But that verse does not say we have no right to judge. It says, hey, you need to examine yourself before you cast judgment. Because Jesus later says in John chapter 7, judge with righteous judgment he even says that we will know people by their fruit we can look at the fruit and determine if they're a good tree or a bad tree there is a place for us to condemn sin and failure to do so is not in keeping with love that paul describes in first corinthians chapter 13. and so paul calls on them in first corinthians chapter 5 to condemn the sin to pronounce judgment on that sin And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2, he said, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Later in verse 11, he instructed those Christians not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That's a call for separation. That's a call for distance. That's a call for Christians to disassociate with a believer who is impenitently sinning. So Scripture indicates that sin is not to be tolerated. Instead, it's to be condemned and separated from. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. When Paul said that in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he was pointing out the fact that sin is contagious. And that the church has to protect itself from that. That the church has to protect itself from being associated with it that the church has to protect itself from integrating it. You see, we can have such an affection for people that we refuse to call out sin. That doesn't help them, and it certainly doesn't help us. Because it makes us guilty just as it made the church in Thyatira guilty, just as it made the church in Corinth guilty. We have to be a people who are willing to identify sin, not tolerate it. We have to be willing to let our affection for God take precedence over our affection for others even when it hurts. Even when it's painful and difficult and not what we want to do. We have to be aware that we can wear a blindfold called affection. I want to conclude with this story about two hunters who were out hunting on land that they were unfamiliar with, trying to determine if it was land they could use. And, and while they were out wandering through this land, they came upon what looked to be an abandoned farm. It wasn't quite abandoned because they could see some chickens pecking around on the ground and they saw one goat walking around, so they knew there was some activity there. But for all intents and purposes, it looked abandoned. There was a, a barn with the roof sagging. There was a, a house in disrepair. And, and, and there, were, there was junk all over the place, old automobiles and car parts laying all around and they came upon a well they wondered if there was still water in that well and how deep it was but they knew the only way they could determine that is if they dropped something down there they happened to notice an old transmission laying over on the side so they went and picked it up and dropped it down the well and listened they eventually heard the splash and got an idea about how deep it was But when they turned around from looking at the well, all of a sudden that goat was charging at them with its head down, its horns pointing straight at them, running as fast as it could. They jumped out of the way, but sure enough, that goat fell down in the well. Next thing they know, a man comes out of the house. They start talking to him and find out that that's his land. So they ask for permission to hunt on it. He grants it to them. And then he said, hey, have you seen my goat? They said, yeah. That goat tried to kill us. It came running at us with its horns directly at us. It was going to hit us and knock us in the well. And and we got out of the way and he fell down the well. You should have tied that goat up or something so he couldn't hurt anybody. And the man said, well, I did have him tied up. I had him tied up to an old transmission. It was supposed to be funny. And the point of that is this. Well, actually, I probably told that one before too. So the point of that is this. You're going to follow what you're tied to. And if your affection has you tied to someone or something other than God, then you're going the wrong way. Your affection determines what you're tied to. And you're going to follow what you're tied to. This morning I want to ask you, what are you tied to? Is your affection, does your affection have you tied to something of this world? Something that John tells us not to? to love or does your affection have you tied to the one and only God only one of those will produce eternal life today if you're not tied to God we invite you by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is his risen son by repenting of your sins and by being immersed in water for forgiveness of those sins To unite yourself with Him. May your affections be solely on Him. Today, if, if you have become a child of God and you have united yourself with Him, but you've distanced yourself because your affection has been elsewhere, because you've put your love somewhere else, it's time to make a decision. It's time to distance yourself from that which is not God. It's time to make him the sole devotion of your life. It's time to change your affection. If you need to make a decision like that, that opportunity is available now as well. If you need to respond to Christ's invitation today in any way, whether for prayers, because you need help overcoming that affection for something else, whether to become a child of God, or whether to write your life with him, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.